0: Thank you.
1: Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Jack Watts, the global CEO of Australia's largest independent agency, Bastian, Welcome, Jack.
0: Thanks for having me, Darren.
1: Look, I love that uh, a couple of things about the largest independent agency in Australia. The first one is independence, because I have to tell you, I've really noticed, particularly over the last couple of years, that this idea of independence has really started to get some resonance with a lot of marketers. Have you felt the same thing or is, there, uh, is this just who you are?
0: Oh, I think absolutely, Darren. You sort of, we started talking five years ago about an age of independence. It was sort of a snappy marketing line. We sort of like to get more clients to pick independence. But... It certainly seems like over particularly the last couple of years through COVID, it's really picked up steam as, yeah, you know, clients. Oh, I think what defines independence is agile, number one, that you're under your own steam. You don't have to go and ask London or Paris or Tokyo for permission. Um, agile, you've got great expertise. You know, typically the best people in my mind are in the independent sector. Um, and, and you've got great care. You know, there, there's something about being independent, whether it be, The guy you buy coffee off downstairs or your local restaurant or cafe or whatever it is, if you're paying to keep the lights on, you do a good job and you care about it. There's something about that independent ethos that I just think resonates with clients today.
1: And Jack, one of the things that I've noticed and clients sometimes struggle with it is the sort of longevity that the management of independent agencies have because after all, they're the ones that have usually got the equity in the company and the name on the door usually, you know, and and so they're there for a long time. What you find in a lot of the network agencies is CEOs come and go because they're appointed in there to do a job. And there's something about that sort of continuous uh, management and ownership that's really appealing, I think, to a lot of marketers.
0: Oh, I completely agree. I mean, turnover has been a problem in this industry since it started, uh, and it is in any professional services industry. But when you've got independence, who you know are sort of rock solid foundations of the business, and particularly some of our client relationships date back to the very beginning 12 years ago. And when you've got the continuity of the IP in a client's business, you know, turnover is as much a problem in a client's business as it is in an agency business. So when you've got an external source of IP in your agency that can carry through what worked and what hasn't on the evolution of a business over sometimes more than a decade, I think clients find that very valuable.
1: Well, absolutely, because I, you made, re, made me remember Samuelson Talbot years ago, before you even got into advertising, but we'll get to that in a minute, they had the uh, PZ Customs business in Australia for like 40 years. And when they finally lost the business, I think it went to, at DDB, they ran a full page ad in the FIN Review. When we ran full page ads in the FIN Review, that congratulated them and said that in the time, in 43 years, they'd had so many CEOs, so many CMOs, but only one agency. And I thought that was such a powerful message of that continuity, you know and owning, in some ways, the heritage and the tradition of that company in this country is something that, you know, you would only see really in an independent relationship because there's too many moving parts in some of these big multinationals. But you're, in some ways, challenging them because the other line I like in there is the largest. And I know people go, big is not better, necessarily. But you've got there fairly quickly. You know, to give us some background on Bastion, and I know it's gone through Bastion Collective and a few other names. But, you know, it's not that old, relatively speaking, is it? The company started, what, uh, just over a decade ago.
0: Yeah, so we've been going 12 years, Darren, and it feels like I'm 34. So you got got me... So you're a baby yeah you got me, it started. Me at 22 and my brother Fergus at 24. Uh, yeah, in the genesis of it in about 2009, 2010.
1: So so also coming out on the back end of the global financial crisis. That's
0: right. Crisis. Well, we both lost our jobs for very – he, he was a footballer. He, he played AFL for Adelaide and St Kilda and I was there one day at Port Melbourne and he was on the outer wing, got tackled, broke his leg in eight different places. I remember watching him get carted off the ground. And it was like, well, that's going to be hard to come back from. I was a currency trader. I thought that was my lot in life and in finance and markets and all that sort of stuff. And I got the sac too in the GFC. So we were both living together, um, couldn't pay the rent, neither of us. And it's like, well, the options are we've got to either find a way to pay the rent or we're moving back in with our parents, which was the worst case scenario for a couple of men in their early 20s. And so... He went off and worked in an advertising agency. I scratched around trying to do a couple of things. Uh, And in the end, he started a creative agency and I started a sponsorship agency at the same time. So we got an office together, shared resources, built the things in tandem for the first year until we said, well, this makes a lot more sense together. So there's a good chunk of our 20s, Darren, where, where we spent a lot of time working out what we were doing. To be honest, I really feel like we've only put the pieces together in the business in the last three years, I would say. Thankfully, that that really started to come together in late 2019, which had us in good nick when COVID hit and we were up against it and every agency was up against it. So it's been a hell of a journey. I mean, every mistake you could possibly make of being an impetuous, headstrong young man or two, two young men who thought, they were, they were the smartest people in every room they walked into. We made so many mistakes, lost big chunks of money on on things that were just obviously we shouldn't have been doing. But they were great learning opportunities and got us to the point we're at today.
1: Well, it's that old uh, saying, isn't it? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, in, in business especially. Absolutely. because you know, in, I always uh, think it's funny how we love focusing on success, but really the Biggest lessons I've learned over 22 years running this business is it's those, all those mistakes that you don't necessarily go around shouting, Hey, I made another mistake or I lost a lot of money. Though one of them is in 2007, I opened offices in Singapore and Hong Kong a week before the global financial press. <laughs> so, you know, great moments in poor timing. But
0: uh, <laughs> oh, I, I used to find that playing football, like I only played sort of amateur football in Melbourne, but it was like, if we lost by a point, we would tear ourselves to pieces looking for every piece of improvement we possibly can. If we won by a point, which was typically the bounce of a ball, yep. just luck, we would celebrate all night long with <laughs> champions and we are going to win the premiership and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And really whether we won or lost that day was down to luck. Yeah. But just what it said on the scoreboard meant we completely changed our approach post-game. and It never made any sense to me. It's like... Yeah. We should be changing when we're winning. Like, that's yeah. the time to make the changes.
1: Yeah, what did we do that we should do more of absolutely. to keep winning? Absolutely, absolutely. But, Jack, where did the name Bastion come from? Because I love it from the point of view it creates this sense of strength and, you know, uh, and and permanence in a way. It's the bastion of advertising.
0: No, well, it, it was, yeah, well, you got it. Go back to the Genesis, which was in the GFC, and what our job was was to convince clients to spend money when everything suggested they shouldn't be spending money. And our whole thing was active defence. That's what you get. It's not enough to just defend; you have to actively defend. And you know what we've been through over the last couple of years: invest when Mm -hmm. times are tough to grow market share out the back of the pandemic in this case, or the global financial crisis ten years ago. And so what a bastion is, it's a a medieval word. So it was one of the biggest innovations in medieval fighting, which was you could defend your castle until the enemy was at the gates. And when they were at the gates, you couldn't shoot arrows down at them because they were too close. Mm. So a bastion was like a triangular sort of uh, jut that was carved into, that was built into these castles so that when the enemy was at the gates, you could fire back upon them. And our whole analogy was that the enemies at the gates, you need to innovate, hence Bastion, which was the original innovation of active defence. Yeah. That's right. It was a good story at the time.
1: Yeah, and a good story now because, you know, I think a lot of the times people are focusing on, you know, the long term, but in some ways you only get to the long term through a succession of battles, don't you? Absolutely. Interesting. So where was? When did the vision sort of coalesce for you around this idea of building the biggest or was it ever a vision to build the biggest?
0: Oh, look, I would, I would love to say, Darren, we started out 12 years ago with this grand vision. The reality is we had no idea what we are doing and the primary objective was um, pay the rent, not to move back in with our parents. And when that was covered, it was like the secondary objective was, well, let's avoid getting real jobs for as long as possible because this is good fun. Yeah, it was hard work, obviously, but this was really good fun. And it, was, it wasn't it was until we started putting the group together. We just sort of followed the bouncing ball with our clients. It was like I was doing sponsorship. Fergus was doing creative. We started padding out the edges of each service offering. And then what kept coming up was our clients um, kept asking for PR services because yeah. that was sort of the bit that fit in between. Yeah. Uh, and so we went and bought a PR business. Uh, it was called Undertone Media. It was a friend of a friend. Um, Janie Martino, who started that business in Richmond, and we brought that business in. And then all of a sudden, we started to build out this group. So it wasn't until about five years ago that we sort of settled on this objective going, well, oh, hang on, we're actually building something. What, what, What is that? Because we can pay the rent and... Um, we don't have to get real jobs anymore. This is our job. So it's like, what, what, what does this mean? And so hence where we settled on, you know, building the largest independent agency. And, and at that point, we had a line about the bastion of Australian ingenuity, mm-hmm. rediscovering that sense of Australian ingenuity, um, you know, in, in innovative problem-solving. And, and it's a topic I'm extremely passionate about. I could talk your arm off about the future of Australia as an innovative nation. But, um, yeah, n- now we're very much... Uh, as we've expanded globally, about building the new world agency,
1: and as you've gone globally, and and particularly you've gone into the US, have you taken that sort of Australian culture and in, in ingenuity into that marketplace, and how's it resonating?
0: Yeah, uh, look, ab- absolutely A- everything we've done, and that was our one of the um, big mistakes we made along the journey. I think it might have been, oh, must have been the mid. 2010s, like 2015, 16. We went to London for no good reason. A guy that worked for us who was really good, his girlfriend, his partner was a teacher in a school in Melbourne. She went to New Zealand for a holiday. Turned out the school never filed her visa. She got deported back to the UK. So he moved back with her and we started a London office. All of a sudden we had 20 people over there. Uh, my brother moved over there. It was actually going quite well. It's an ex- As you know, it's an extremely competitive market. Mm. Um, and the whole thing fell in a heap. We just went too fast. And it cost us a million bucks, like a million dollars. Yeah. yeah, and that was a sinkhole in the middle of the joint that we yeah. couldn't afford and certainly didn't know how to deal with at the time. So the lesson was we're going to build each business with locals, you know, through, through an acquisition strategy largely in the U.S. on the ground with U.S. CEO, um, and on New Zealand with New Zealand CEO, it's a business built with locals, but what we're trying to export is what you said, which is an Australian way of doing things. yeah, uh, you know, a sense of what I said before, agility, expertise, a sort of partnership attitude with clients where it's a no bullshit approach where we do good work, we're driven, we're hungry but we have fun along the way. and that's the set of values in the business we we're, we're trying to export in every market we operate in.
1: And it's interesting because part of that is achievable because of the idea of the founders. You know, there's that concept about the founders actually hold the values and the culture of the organisation in them. It must be really important to find the right local uh, partners to actually export that too because they'll have their own values and their own culture. That they bring to the table, and then how do you in, uh, sort of implant that or transfer that to them?
0: Yeah, it's a cracking question, Darren, and one that I, that, I mean, particularly with the New Zealand business we bought in last October, sixty staff over there, great business, fantastic leader in Simon Curran, been running fifteen years, you know, great clients, Air New Zealand, Spark, Genesis, all the big clients over there. It's a bit, pretty much the biggest. If it's not the biggest independent, it's neck and neck with the biggest independent over there. Uh, and, you know, an incredibly intricate culture. You know, we, we I think Australians sometimes fall in the, um, into the trap of New Zealand being the ninth state and territory of Australia, but it's so different. And working with the, the team over there for the last six months, particularly the way they, the journey they're on in, you know, um, the journey on their relationship with the Maori people and the integration of that into New Zealand culture, it's so intrinsically integrated that I've learned so much about mm. that we we're take we're bringing back to Australia of our integration of indigenous culture into our yeah. business so we're trying to build yeah a new world agency model that's consistent in every market I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second with regional culture and a consistent set of values and they're three different things and it's trying to the the balance I'm trying to get right is what do you sort of say, has to be mandated, what has to be the same in every region and what can be different? Because there has to be both. Um, the last thing we want to do is be a WPP or a denser that just goes, here's how you do it, guys. I don't care about your local customs and your local cultures and what local clients want. This is how we do things.
1: Yeah. It's interesting you should say that. And and you, one, you've mentioned the New World Agency, which I want to get to. But um, before that, uh, you know, when you talk about WPP, yeah, the brands within there. And, and my last agency I worked at before I started uh, Trinity P3 was J. Walter Thompson. And it's interesting when you see the history. You know, J. Walter Thompson was a New York agency. You know, uh, Commodore J. Walter Thompson was a member of the, uh, the, the New York uh, Yacht Club. And uh, started selling media on behalf of media owners. And then it grew into an advertising agency. But it really wasn't until the 20th century. That's the 19th century started it. The 20th century, when they started to expand globally. And there was a guy, James Webb Young, who was the sort of the architect and the the, uh, person that carried the JWT to virtually every corner of the world. And he did that on the back of some big clients like the Crafts of the World, you know, just wherever they had a plant, they opened a J. Walter Thompson office. And while they recruited local people, they exported the culture of the original agency. Now, it was that sort of almost US imperialism of, you know, here's the US culture, here's our advertising agency, and bang, there it's going to work in Melbourne. There it is going to work in, you know, Santiago, Diego, or there it's going to work in Shanghai, for instance. Not back then, but, you know, now. And I found it really interesting because it's r- such an old imperialist way of thinking, whereas what you've shared is almost quite, you know, 21st century, isn't it?
0: Oh, uh, absolutely. Look, uh, and as an aside, I'm sure we'll talk about WPP in a second, but, but such a travesty that the JWT name no longer exists. Yeah. Um, you know, a great business that... At, you know 100 plus years old as you said and yeah you know, we really defined so much about the way advertising is structured um but I think an Australian set of values an Australian way of doing things is imminently exportable and we've been doing that in Australia since the the, the modern day Australia started um and I think that is congruent absolutely congruent around the world and resonates and when, when I go to the US and go and visit our major clients which I did last month, it's a way of doing things that resonates with people. It's a There's a certain amount of spirit that goes with it. You know, we used to talk about in the early days, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen Toy Story, but the, the, the scene where um, Woody goes to Buzz, Buzz can't fly, and then Buzz goes, there, I can fly. He goes, okay, we'll prove it. And Buzz just bounces off things around the room and he ends up landing perfectly and he goes, there, I can fly. And Woody goes, that wasn't flying, right. that was falling with style.
1: Yeah.
0: And that was our motto in the early days. You go, well, if we're young and, yeah, you know, we're in our 20s trying to sell big stuff to big clients, uh, if we don't have 30 years of expertise behind us, we're going to do it with style. So if yeah. we're going to fall, with style. we're going to fall with style. And so we used to have elaborate presentations to clients, dress up in all sorts of things. And I remember one time I did a sports presentation to a client and I had the kit of the sports club underneath my suit. And I stripped off in the office. Um, and it was just, it was the it was a level of chutzpah we needed to compete because if we didn't have the expertise, we had to have the style. And yeah. and I've tried to keep the ethos of that as we've expanded our business globally, because often for clients, and I think we forget this as agencies, we're typically the best part of their day.
1: You know where you're presenting. Well, you can be. You can be. But it's up to you. I mean, this is going back to what you said at, almost at the start of our conversation. You know, it was about this is a job that's fun. You know, compared to foreign foreign exchange, uh, you know, fluctuations and you know, uh, training for the weekly AFL match, this is a lot more fun, or can be. Oh, but I do th- Don't you think the industry's lost? The industry's become. Far too serious.
0: And I know why, you know, we're talking about attributions, direct sales models, yeah, particularly yeah in media, which is which is all about return investment, as it well should be. Mm. But the industry is built on style. And what I love about the industry is the people it attracts. I've always been a proponent and why I love this industry so much is you you got to have a bit of a screw loose to work in it because you can get typically get paid more and work less hours somewhere else, yeah. in-house typically. So to be attracted to an agency to start with, you, you got to want variety and a, and a sense of sort of difference in your life and be surrounded by enthusiastic, tenacious people. So it's filled with that, you know, people who wanted to be artists and writers and statisticians and journalists and all these walks of life come into the agency industry, which is what I love it so much. It just, I I just think the industry's lost track of how much fun this is.
1: Mm. And one of the things that I've always noticed is the best advertising people are the ones that love constant challenge. You know, it's interesting how, you know, and, and I say to clients all the time, you want to know how to get the most value out of your agency. It's not by squeezing them on the number of hours. It's about giving them a constant challenge to solve and then giving them the acknowledgement when they solve it. Because I don't care uh, how many procurement people sit there and work out how many FTEs and average cost per FTEs. If you want a strategic person, an account management person, a creative person, a production person, thinking about your problem 24-7 and how to fix it, just give them great problems to solve for you, you
0: know? Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the typically the gnarliest briefs are the funnest ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, we've been working with a new car rental brand across five or six different services in our business, launching sixth, the German brand in this country on December 1 from scratch. Mm. Hell of an interesting proposition. You know, it's a, it's a brand globally that does really interesting, intriguing communications and advertising, and basically here we had carte blanche and an incredible client on that journey. That it was a gnarly problem, and it was just so much fun to solve because you had to pull in PR specialists and creatives and yeah, social media people across the business to come together to solve that mm-hmm. challenge. And that yeah, they're typically the best when you when you don't get. I also think the industry's gone too much about here's the advertising brief or here's the PR brief. Yeah, it's yeah. like, no, can we just get the problem? Yeah. Tell us the problem because it may not be a PR solution or it may not be a social media solution or a creative solution.
1: And, look, I, I absolutely agree with you, but I think the, the other problem is that the business has turned into not a business of solving problems but a business of selling services, and I Call this the sort of corporatization of advertising, you know, going back to your point about, you know, when we started getting holding companies, holding companies went and bought very good agencies. But then, of course, they listed and so they were more worried about how to keep the shareholders happy than they were about keeping their clients happy in a way that it was about running the business better, you know, squeezing the margins to make sure they got their costs down and maximised margins so they could report increased profits. And, And so there was this sort of paradox in a way. How do we keep shareholders happy and how do we keep clients happy? Because, you know, I always find it interesting, really switched on clients sit there and go, I noticed Omnicom have just announced record profits is that my money? You know, it's like it's weird because again, when you're an independent private company, you're not going around telling the world, oh, look how much money I've made. You know, what better way to piss off a client that thinks you're overcharging?
0: Oh, I c- couldn't agree more, Darren. And there's so many topics to just then. I mean, the, the, one of the great shames in this industry is what listing STW did. Yeah. You know, that was a great business. You know, and 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 much before my time, you know, as I said, I'm, um, yeah, I wasn't around for much of it. But so many people in our business used to work in, yeah, the Singos and the STWs and all, all of that, even the Mojos when that got bought. It just the corporatization of creative. They're juxtaposing forces. You know, they're almost like opposite magnets. And they don't get me wrong. There's a certain amount of rigor. And detail and margin that needs to be driven out of agencies because I feel very strongly about that. That fundamentally we've got a responsibility to make sure all our staff's jobs are secure. So we're unashamedly driven by um, a financially secure business mm-hmm. to make sure that everyone's going to put food on the table for as long as they, as long as you know, they've got a job as Bastion and Bastion's going to last a very long time. Um, but it just the, the the corporatization of communications and creative is just. Ra- strung the life out of this business. Um, and, and the holding co model is just, you know, c- completely taking the fun out of it. And I could go on all day about how fucked the whole co model is. I mean, it's just wrong. Can, can
1: well,
0: we look, just agree with
1: that? No, look, I have I, I, I've come to the realization that it in many ways meets the needs of a small but small number of clients, but very large clients. You know, in some ways, if you've got a global business and you're wanting control over that global business, then appointing a global network of agencies to service it is a way of achieving control, but not necessarily doing the best advertising, right? uh, And so I think it works for those. I feel sorry for advertisers that might be in only two or three markets and are, are with one of those because what they don't realize is that almost all of these holding companies and the networks that belong to the holding companies have to pay a percentage of all their revenue of course right and it can be anywhere between I've heard as little as 7 or 8% up to 15%. So but that's even for the independent clients. So there's between 8 and 15% of what you're paying that agency that's going to run this infrastructure, which you don't get within, you know, for instance, a local business or a, or an independent business because uh, it just all goes into abs- a pot.
0: Uh, well, if, if you yeah, know, if you're a client of a, a holdco, as you say, 10% of your fees go to London, Paris, Tokyo, New York. Fact. And yeah. their overheads run at 25%. That's after the 10%, you know, charge back to global. You know, by the time you've got offices and you've got central services, particularly listed businesses, when you've got to have so many resources managing the listed, obviously WPPs unlisted locally, but just just those central costs kill agencies. And, and let's, if we can, talk about the new world. Models, yeah, yeah. We let's, let, it. I mean,
1: well, it, it's a good, uh, a good segue there because what is the new world model? Well, what is the uh, new world agency?
0: I'm glad you asked, Aaron, because obviously <laughs> it's a topic I'm passionate about. Fits into why we structured our business the way we have. But I'll, I'll take a step back, more mm-hmm. broadly, and I'll, I'll outside of communications or the service industry, and just go into ten or fifteen years of it, digital disruption is the wrong word. Um, it's customer experience disruption. Yeah, what what has happened over 10 or 15 years, all of us as consumers, we have, there are businesses that are largely product-led businesses. They sell things you can touch and feel and see, have um, built, uh, have come from nothing It didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago to be the absolute dominant market player. And you know the businesses I'm talking about. Amazon, Netflix, Uber, Tesla, they do the same thing. Netflix and Blockbuster deliver the exact same product, except Netflix just deliver in a much more customer-friendly way. And that's where you've seen this massive disruption in every part of the product industry where new world players have have started from scratch, come through the pack to dominate that industry. Now, we haven't seen that so much in the service industry because the benefits of incumbency run much deeper. I'm talking about retail banks, investment banks, consultancies and marketing agencies large. There's a few more like that. But what you, what you haven't seen is mass disruption in the service industry. Um, and that's what you're starting to see now. You're starting to see new world models come and challenge all of those, where you look at the big four banks and you look at Judo Bank launching from scratch, the client of mm-hmm. ours that we, we launched, um, go from nothing to a $2 billion plus valuation in five yeah. or six years. Those guys, Joseph Healy and everyone at Judo, largely doing the same thing they were doing at NAB. They all came out of the NAB business bank, pretty much the same offering, with a greater level of customer service, zero to two billion valuation. You see Sayers do it in consultancies, obviously Luke Sayers, um, come out of, uh, he was at PwC, I think, come out of PwC, start Sayers, you know, going, I I think they're up to 150 people in Melbourne currently in 18 months. Um, You see it in investment banks like um, Baron Joey, in Sydney, you know, again, everyone out of UBS and a couple of other banks, new world model, customer service proposition. And that's what we're trying to do in well, that's what we're doing in communications agencies. And let's talk about how that's structured. Because yeah,
1: what's that actually mean in a in a sort of uh, marketers experience sense?
0: Yeah, right. So we're here to create the new world agency in communications and we're here to do that in every market operator the world. And I'll, talk about why we've gone overseas, because there's been a specific reason and specific learnings from failed operations abroad. But when you look at the Holcomb model, uh, and I'm happy to be discredited, I'm happy for any of the listeners here to write to you or me saying I'm wrong, but the Holcomb model was built in a madman era of advertising. It was built around a proposition of as many front doors as possible, sacrifice a bit of margin on the front door, make money on the back door. Bulk media commissions, AVBs, Agency Volume Bonuses, which was Harold's shtick. That was Harold's go and every other media agency. And bulk and volume production. Multiple front doors, competing internal agencies, get the volume, or will make the money on the back end. Obviously, those two rivers of gold, um, media buying and production, have changed dramatically. Media buying commission has gone from 10 or 20% to, what is it now, 4%, 5 6%. <laughs> yeah. And where you used to make million dollar ads every week, you now might make one a month, one a quarter. The the model of production is a lot harder model to make money. Well, and
1: even worse because it's moved away from the big TV production, and really the volume is in the thousands of you know social media updates that are all absolutely. And where you
0: used to make money is in the big ads because you'd be creaming margin at every step of the way, or the multinationals will be, and so the whole model doesn't make any sense because the money makers on the back door don't make money anymore or make nowhere near as much, which is why you're seeing JWT and London. Consolidation. That's why you're seeing consolidation because the costs of multiple front doors and competing internal agencies doesn't make sense anymore because you can't make the money on the back end. And so clients want less agencies, not more, in my opinion. They want because the consumer journey has changed so much, the consumer doesn't, the, it's completely at the discretion of the consumer when to come in and out of the customer journey. And so you've got to be consistent across all channels.
1: Okay. Um, and Look, completely agree with what you're saying. And yes, there's an argument for consolidation. But, you know, a lot of the holding companies, Dentsu, for instance, are, are trying to compress this down so that there's one door and all the services Omnicom and IPG to less, but WPP Publicis, Power of One, you know, they're all moving that direction. And in some ways, when I look at the Bastion model, you know, you've got the same thing. You've got the one name, but then you've got these sections underneath that. And I noticed when you changed the name from Bastion Collective to Bastion, it felt like you're a mini holding company model. Are you... How's it different from replicating what they're well,
0: doing? Well, I think what the holding companies are trying to be, the, the models they're trying to build today for the modern world, is what we've already built. They're trying to be one front door, centres of excellence in every service, fully integrated model to the client, be able to offer you know, one centralised account service team that can pull in and out experts of any discipline to take their campaigns and their marketing across every touchpoint of the consumer journey. So... Are we a holding company? No, we're one big agency, but with multiple services. You yeah. see Chet rebranded a couple yeah. of weeks ago. I think they've rebranded to look a lot, lot like what we've built, which is, um, you, you know, one name under one roof.
1: Well, it is because, and and in some ways, you know, technology has enabled this, is the customer journey is almost all digital now. You know, every aspect of the customer journey or the path to purchase is usually some sort of technology format, whether it's advertising or or online or whatever. But, you know, and and so trying to manage multiple suppliers at each of those steps becomes incredibly difficult. And so this continuum, you know, having one place that can help you, top of what um, McKinsey call it, full funnel marketing. Absolutely. Being able to go at every level, you know, be connected at every level. And technology enables that as well. That you know, all of this technology, I hate the word disruption, because technology is only ever an enabler. It's not the actual disruptor, right? right? But um, the thing that's different is you yes, you are one agency, whereas a lot of them are still struggling with competing PLs. Yep. Apart from uh where they've got country P&Ls, so they have broken down that sort of the financial barriers of of sharing clients, but it's still separate brands because they've still got Leo Burnett's and they've still got such in you know. A-
0: well, it, it, whenever you've got competing internal agencies, you will you can never provide a truly integrated service to the client, in my opinion, because you're competing with yourself, and the walls will never be broken down inside the agency to deliver what's best for the customer, because you're head to head. And, and that's never going to happen. And that's my challenge, Darren.
1: So, so, Jack, um, you know, your market research, you tell me the names. Yeah? Yep. You've got names Insights, yeah. Insights, right. And you've got PR is... Amplify. Uh, Amplify. You know, are they separate businesses or are they just labels to help people navigate?
0: They're separate services. So we right. talk about our business being wide, yeah. as in we deliver the breadth of communications, everything mm-hmm. but mainstream media, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but deep, as in every service we offer is delivered by true experts. We're never going to be one of those agencies that says, yeah, we can do your corporate comms or we can do your PR and we're going to trot out our one PR person. It's like, no, there's 40 PR people sitting over there that are true experts in their field. So they're built in, in, in centres of excellence, centres of expertise, um, that all work together as one big agency or as individual services as they may be. So give you a stats: 70% of our clients touch more than one part of our business. Most of our largest clients touch four or five parts of our business. And I've heard this feedback from a lot of clients is when they get fully integrated as a large client of ours, they don't know which services they touch, to be honest. They just see it all as bastion, which is exactly what we want them to see it as, and Yeah, the best, best client relationships we have, they tell us their problems and their account service team and typically the GAD or the MD or whoever is the top of the tree in that account pulls in the right people from across our business, the right expertise to solve that problem. And the client doesn't see our internal barriers. And we're continually on a journey of removing any roadblock inside our business to collaboration because, of course, they come up. And my job is to throw them out the window as quickly as I can find them.
1: So, Jack, what I'm hearing is that in some ways, new world agency or the new world approach is to do exactly what the industry has been telling their clients, which is to create a seamless experience for the client. You know, that they, they, they come to you to solve their problems and it's really not about what the solution would necessarily be. Except the fact that you have these labels suggests that you also know that clients have been trained over years to go, oh, I need a PR solution. Is that what the labels are for? To attract yeah, people to the discipline?
0: It's a good question. And, and, and it's it's the it hone the craft as much as anything. You know, if, if you're a PR practitioner or you're a corporate communications practitioner, you want to work in a area of true expertise. If you're a creative, you want to come to a red hot creative agency. And so hence we need to build a depth of expertise, but it's part of being wide. So I think the attraction of any staff member or any client is they can get, they can be part of their core craft. No, I I get that. But they can grow their communications
1: expertise. Because, yeah, absolutely, because people, you know, want to be working with and, and developing their skill sets in their discipline that they've chosen. Okay, so you raised it before, and I noticed it uh, when I was looking through the services that Bastion offer. No paid media. Where's so, paid media? Uh, it's like, a, it, like it, yeah. anyone sitting and listening to this would be going, everyone knows that's where all the money is. Why aren't you in paid media? Mate, it's a, it's a great question.
0: Obviously, we've made some acquisitions over the journey, quite a few um, or startups where we've started a new part of the business with one key person we've pulled out of another place. Um, we do a bit of paid social. When well, I say so a bit, yeah. it's a bit. It's just what what has to be done to to service. And you probably do search, you know, uh, Google AdWords, oh, you could do. Not, not really. But the the, an- the honest answer is, if one of three, if I could cut a deal with one of three independent media agencies, I consider to be world class. I would have done that by now. Right. And I will continue to try and do that.
1: Okay, I am AA members.
0: Mate, <laughs> it, 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 it's... Be it's, pitching we, yourself to Bastion. We work with some awesome independent media agencies, awesome ones, and, and we love the relationships we have with them and they're seamless. And walking in with creative and media and PR and the full solution, which is obviously what we're selling the clients that we do, fully integrated solution... It, there's a big hole in it, you know, with yeah, look, media and, offering.
1: And, and because it's more than just about making money, the amount of knowledge, information, data that sits with publishers that you could access through that to then enrich the other services must be constantly, you know, you must be aware of it.
0: It is. And and mate, we obviously work with all of the big media agencies on clients and that's always been why I've been reticent to really launch a media offering, even though I just said if I could, I would, Yeah. which is... Absolutely, I stand by that. But because we work so closely, like obviously all the government businesses with, yeah, depending on which government, with a multinational media agency, that's obviously being publicised. Yeah, yeah. On, I am.
1: No, on. no, that's right. Yeah. Um, they go. And but in he, fact, I think New South Wales got into trouble uh, late exactly, last year because that, yeah. they were only going for big. Yeah.
0: And, and so you've got to work absolutely hand in glove with these, with these media agencies that we love working with, which is why. It's always been a nice-to-have in our mix as opposed to a must-have. Because I think the last value out of the holding group model is in is in media, you know, being able to have the trading desk and the exchange and the, the um, tools and the credit insurance in one place. I mean, every independent media agency in Australia largely places their media through OMG or one of the big ones. So there is absolutely benefits to a global... Media agency model. I don't believe there's benefits in, a, in other services in, in being part of a whole co.
1: Yeah. Hey, um, you mentioned STW Group, and I've been sitting here going, St- Oh, uh, so uh, Jack Watts, is there any connection between you and an agency, Jack Watts Curry, which were all uh, the partners were all sort of from the advertising industry? Because I know some people say to me, oh, yeah, um, he's from, uh, you know, his parents are from advertising. Is that...? Uh-
0: Mate, it comes up occasionally and it's funny. It's absolutely no connection. The first I heard of it was my old man went on a business trip to Sydney when I was 12 years old and he met with Jack Watts Curry, and he brought me back a business card. As you're 12 and before the internet. And it said Jack Watts on it and I thought it was really cool but like, I had a business card.
1: <laughs> okay, so so on that basis, you know, I, one of the things that excites me is when I have these conversations with people that have started agencies without having a heritage of, of advertising because do you think it's given you an advantage or a disadvantage in the way that you've built the business?
0: I think it's, and again, this comes up occasionally, and I think it's been a massive advantage because you go in with no preconceived ideas. Um, And you go in knowing that you need experts around you. You know, when you look at, I love the independent sector with a passion. I love independent thinking. I love independent agility. But I'm very critical of the independent sector that no one Joins forces to build a viable alternative to the multinationals. that can truly, across sectors, across services, take it up to the multinational agencies. And that's because they come out with a skill set. They build, you know, they bring a couple of clients with them from their previous agency, typically. Um, they build that to a certain point, and typically they always hit a cap, whether it's one person. The agent, typical agency points of you – know, of, of, the typical agency ceiling's. One person, 10 people, 30 people, 50 people, 80 people. Yeah, and you can count on one hand the amount of independent agencies in Australia more than, what, 60, 70 yeah. people. Um, and, you know, because that's dead typically one or two services. And what's been beneficial to us is because we had no fucking idea what we were doing, Yeah, <laughs> you went forth with a level of uh, youthful ignorance and exuberance that said, well, we're going to make this up as we go along and that's
1: okay. And look, I think in many ways, you know, you had the true green field because you didn't have those preconceived ideas of what an agency meant, meant, and you've created it yourself. Jack Watts, this has been a terrific conversation, except we've run out of time. Um, I'd love to continue it. Perhaps uh, we can come back and continue that sometime in the future.
0: Love to, Darren. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I do have a question for you. Like 12 years ago, you you said before, you really didn't have any idea. As we sit here today, where do you see Bastion in 12 years' time?